because I do ask questions about the end times and the Bible and, and salvation and original sin and all kinds of things. But I do all of it through the lens of an experience with Jesus. So it's an incredibly Christocentric, what I call memoir theology. And um, it's about belief. And that means Christianity after religion is finally done. This is the CBF Podcast Conversations. Each week, we are bringing you stories from across the world of people doing groundbreaking and innovative work in renewing God's world. Ideas, stories, and creativity from practitioners, ministers, thinkers, authors, and more. I'm Andy Hale, your podcast host. We're excited about another year of delivering interviews worth your time, attention, and collaboration. This platform is not designed for you to listen on an island unto yourself. Share your insights, thoughts, and feedback from the podcast with us on CBF's Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram pages. We also want you to join the CBF podcast community through our CBF podcast listener support page at cbf.net backslash podcast support. We see you, Tucker, Georgia, Warsaw, Poland, San Francisco, California, and Sydney, Australia. First-time listeners and long-time listeners, we are grateful you are here for the conversation. We also want to give a special shout-out to some of our podcast listener supporters, including Carson Fushi, Cindy Foldendor, Bill Johnson, Ralph Stocks, and that anonymous person that keeps giving a gift in honor of CBF Trump. And before we move on, we want to give a word of gratitude to our three annual sponsors, the Center for Congregational Health, McAfee School of Theology Doctorate and Ministry Program, and the Baptist Seminary of Kentucky. And now... On to our conversation. This podcast is presented to you by the Center for Congregational Health, whose mission is to help faith communities and their leaders thrive. Healthy congregations can transform their communities to be more compassionate, faithful, and just. Utilizing a network of highly skilled coaches, consultants, and intentional interim ministers, the Center supports congregations and ministry leaders to address the challenges they face. Visit their website, healthychurch.org, to learn more about how the center can be your trusted partner in ministry. Our guest for this week's CBF podcast conversation is Dr. Diana Butler-Bass. She is an award-winning author with countless books to her name, including her, her new work, Freeing Jesus. She is a trusted voice among progressive Christians, often speaking at the intersection of politics, culture, life, and religion. She's appeared on CBS, CNN, PBS, NPR, Time and Newsweek, and along with Rolling Stones. And now she can add to her appearances, of course, the CBF uh, podcast. Uh, Diana, thank you for joining the conversation. It's great to be with you, Andy. Thank you for inviting me. There's so many C's in there. I kind of got caught up. I was like, Man, she's been... <laughs> She's been on a lot of shows. Um, so. Oh, you missed the CBC. I think that's the one you got probably tripped over, the Canadian the, Broadcasting Corporation. <laughs> how could I forget the CBC, uh, you know, host of all great shows? Um, Our friends so, to the north. Yes, yes. Um, so th there are so many questions uh, to get to about your work and your writing. Um, but I have to ask, do you know how wonderful and impactful you are to so many of us? You know, I there there are moments when I'm surprised by a comment or an appreciation. And I think to myself, oh, my gosh, I guess my work really has had an influence. Um, I don't know that people would guess this, but but I'm actually a pretty in some ways shy and a little bit modest of a person. And so uh, I was just at Chautauqua, a wonderful, you know, big summer uh, camp where they have all these amazing speakers. And I, I did a presentation and afterwards the, the audience, and I'm just going to tell the story. You know, it's a little embarrassing in some ways to tell it, but the, the, the audience was so appreciative. They gave me a standing ovation and I was so embarrassed that I just kind of snuck off the pulpit and <laughs> sat down as quickly as I could, but they were just, you know, people are really kind and it is, um, enormously gratifying when someone tells me that 
my words made a difference to the work they do in the world. And that's the purpose of it for me. Hmm. So in all, in all seriousness, you know, I can, I can begin to name all the ways your writing and speaking has impacted so many lives. Um, but I wonder if you'll take us back for just a moment before you became such a household name for many of us, what was the hope when you wrote your first book? Oh, that's a, I don't think anybody's ever asked me that question. Um, I really wanted to, when I started, when I started doing non-academic writing, um, I think my dream was to be a writer like Kathleen Norris or Anne Lamont. And when I say that, it's not so much that I was imagining, you know, selling as many books as say either of those two amazing writers. But I, I had this dream that I wanted to put beautiful stories in the world about life and God, and that those stories would influence other people to experience the spiritual life as something that was meaningful and beautiful and worthy of their commitment and their time and their, their energy. And so I was really shaped uh, by those women writers, particularly of the 1990s, um, who were just, I mean, they're, they, they wrote amazing books. Um, you know, there was Annie Dillard, there was, there was Kathleen Norris, there was Anne Lamont, there was, um, uh, Roberta Bondi, who I think was a little less known nationally, but certainly well known in many Christian circles, particularly in the South, because I think she taught at Emory. Um, and Renita Weems, who taught at Vanderbilt, and she might have just retired. So there were these really amazing um, women, brilliant women and word crafters, uh, who that those were the people I I wanted to be seen sitting in a circle with that. That was my, my, my hope and my imagining was to have my books be able to, to stand next to theirs and shine with the kind of light and beauty that their books shine with. So that was really it. I just, I just wanted to put beautiful words in the world about God. <laughs> you know, I'm, I'm looking at your bookcase and realizing we at least have, one book in common, uh, you know, you're looking, maybe looking at your bookshelf. Is there, is there any up there that, um, we would be surprised or on your bookshelf, or maybe you might be a little embarrassed to tell us, yeah, this is a guilty pleasure book that's back there. Oh, <laughs> you know, I, I just actually did a podcast for, um, a, a group in England It's called the nomad podcast. And as part of doing their podcast, they ask you to send a, photo of a book stack of books that have had a big influence on your life. And so I went through back here and, and the books go down that wall and they're, they're over there. There's so many books in this room. It's not even funny. And I was, I pulled off all these different books that had influenced me and uh, I created basically a book mountain. <laughs> I had to weed them out because there were so many in there that, that, that were, that were meaningful to me. Uh, but I think the, I think people will be impressed by sort of the oddness of my mountain. And uh, one of the books in the mountain, and that is, I don't know, it's not really all that embarrassing, but it might be a little surprising. Matthew Fox's book, Original Blessing, which I think was written in 89 or 91, someplace right around there, which it, it was, it, it had a huge impact on me. And um, that book, uh, Matthew Fox, who was then Catholic, um, was writing about sort of the other side of Christian tradition, people who saw uh real beauty in the world who took the earth seriously as the body of God, who were not necessarily all caught up in the doctrine of original sin, who understood salvation as really wholeness and healing, not necessarily I'm going to heaven to be with Jesus after I die. Um, and um, it's, it's a kind of a quirky book, a little bit old fashioned. And he kind of goes through some of the major thinkers in this sort of alternative tradition. And, 
uh, now I think people are familiar with that same kind of vision, mostly through the work of Richard Rohr, who refers to an alternative orthodoxy. But Matthew Fox was really the first person to popularize that and put that in a book that showed up in Barnes and Noble. So there was Matthew Fox's original blessing in that stack right next to George Marsden's Fundamentalism in American Culture. <laughs> And uh, then I think next to it, next to that was uh, a book that was written by a fellow named Tom Thomas Howard, who was the brother of the very famous missionary Elizabeth Elliot. Um, I know a lot of Baptists know that story about Elizabeth Elliot and her husband Jim Elliot going to evangelize the indigenous people in Ecuador, and Jim Elliot gets killed, and Elizabeth Elliot stays in Ecuador with her baby daughter and converts this whole tribe of of people in Ecuador to Christianity. Um, her brother Tom Howard was a professor of English at Gordon College for many, 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 many years, and I I got to know him um, a little bit when I was a seminary student, I was at Gordon Conwell, which was right down the street. And Tom went to the same church I went to. And he wrote a little, little book in the late 1960s, I believe, uh, maybe 1972, called Christ the Tiger. And it was a, it was just like this little personal um, story about a guy who grew up in evangelicalism, really conservative kind of fundamentalist Baptist, actually, um, and encountered literature and art. And he went to England and he 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 met C.S. Lewis and all this kind of stuff uh, right before Lewis had died and became friends with all these very, you know, well-known intellectual Christian intellectuals in, in at Oxford. And um it's, it's this breezy, very sort of 1970-ish spiritual memoir about a person who experienced the bigger world. And that little book, I, I read it years and years and years and years ago, and it, I loved it. And it, it sort of opened my heart to understand that God was bigger than all the categories that we put God in. And so those three books together, Matthew Fox, George Marsden, and Tom Howard, sort of all side by side. <laughs> it's like, wow, this woman, she's had kind of a weird spiritual journey. And then there were all, <laughs> then there were all sorts of feminist theology books and, and things that are a little bit more predictable that people will be less surprised by. Uh, but, um, you know, you might be surprised uh, whose stuff shows up in my book mountain. Yeah. <laughs> Well, I've I've got that section. It's it's right here in my office, right here. These are the the books that have formed me and shaped me. So, and I'm I'm not saying this because you're here, but I'm looking at grounded ah. and grateful and Christianity after religion and Christianity for the rest of us. Just all mm. all sitting right there. So you've got it. You've got a new book out, freeing Jesus. Uh, you're inviting readers to rediscover Jesus about the constraints of our theological assumptions uh, about him. You wrote. If we think that being with Jesus means getting the right answers from a creed or remembering point of doctrine from a sermon, we probably will not manage to truly know Jesus. Where was the inspiration of this book born? Oh, well, I love the fact that you mentioned Christianity after religion, grounded and grateful right there before we before you asked this question, uh, because uh, freeing Jesus is the last book in what I understand to be kind of an extended project of writing that started with Christianity After Religion. Um, Christianity After Religion presents three ideas. And the, the first idea is that demographics are changing Christianity in the Western world, particularly in the United States and, and Canada, in ways that will be utterly revolutionary. So that was the first idea. The second idea is that that demographic change was breaking loose a set of new questions about the nature of faith. And I wrote about those questions around belonging, behaving, and believing. And then the third piece of, of Christianity after religion was that if we can wrestle with these new questions we will have found ourselves in the territory of a new great awakening. 
So that's Christianity After Religion. It's a very simple kind of book, three sections, three sets of, of ideas. The middle set of ideas, the belonging, uh, behaving, and believing pieces, after I wrote Christianity After, after Religion, that's a lot of afters, um, my editor said to me, you know, this, this book seems, it's, he, he loved that book. That, that book has done incredibly well. Um, and, uh, but he said, it seems in a sense incomplete. He said, it seemed like you might have more to say um, about belonging, behaving, and believing. And, you know, I, as a writer, I ruminated on that and realized I, I did. And so I thought, well, I've set the questions up but how do I now answer those questions in my own life? And so from that, that comment from my editor and then challenging myself about how I answer my own questions, three other books were born. Grounded was born from the, the idea of belonging. I, I literally thought, okay, how do I understand who I am? How do I belong? And so Grounded answers the question the way that I have come to answer the question of belonging. And that is, if we really understand that we belong to nature, the earth, and our neighbors, the communities that we inhabit, the human constructed communities we inhabit, then we find ourselves more deeply in God. Um, so as we belong to nature and neighbor, we discover a new new belonging in God. So that's grounded. Uh, grateful is about a practice. It's about a behavior. And um, the, I, I kept, when I got to that point, I went to write about a practice. My, my sister-in-law, Dorothy Bass, um, people who might be a little bit older in the audience who went to seminary, maybe in the um, the eighties and nineties. Remember uh, Dorothy, uh, the early aughts, remember Dorothy's work really well. She wrote a lot about practicing our faith and she really cared about, uh, about Christian practices. So we've had these conversations in my family for several decades. Dorothy's uh, 10 years older than I am. And um, so I thought, you know, I don't want to just replicate the work that like my sister-in-law did. Um, what, what practice seems from my perspective, to be the most vital for um, a, a truly healed social order. What do we really, what practice is most needed now? And um, when I was answering the question, I realized the practice that I most needed was a practice of gratitude and that I really didn't understand um, gratitude at all. I didn't understand it theologically terribly well, despite the fact that I'm an Episcopalian and we do Eucharist or Thanksgiving every single week. And um, that I personally would not have understood myself as being a terribly grateful person. Um, and um, so so I, I thought, well, why not write about something that's hard for me? And as I engaged it, uh, that book, in some ways, is the most transformative book personally that I've ever written. Um, Grounded is my favorite book in the sense that there's a there's a personalness about that and a crafting of my writing that I'm th that I took that book somewhere that I always dreamed of going with my writing. And so, so Grounded is this book that is so close to my heart. I just adore that. I just adore it. It's my favorite child. Don't tell my other books that. Um, <laughs> But grateful is the one that changed me the most um, because I realized how important gratitude really is for ourselves as individuals and for community. And it, that it's also, I think, in certain ways, the most fundamental of all human practices. And it's the kind of practice that has all kinds of theological dimensions, if you're a Christian or a Jew or a Muslim. Um, but it also has kind of non-theological dimensions uh, that certainly Christians can't argue with um, if you're a Buddhist or Hindu. Um, and it also has humanist dimensions uh, that create new conversations, I think, between people of faith and people who are post-religious. And so, so I, I, that book was about, you know, behavior. What behavior do we need, need most 
to restitch the common good and to draw us closer to the 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 image of god that's what how i would say it as a christian that we all share as as human beings and so that was the behavior part so i got to the end of grateful and said said editor who is now my agent actually he's we've been together for almost 20 years uh, he he says okay where's the believing book <laughs> Because that was the third question, you know, in, in uh, Christianity After Religion. And I said, well, I guess I'm going to have to write it. And he said, "You, yes, you are. He said, I know what this project has been all about for you. And so he said, what, what would you like to write about belief? And um, the book started out being a far more encompassing kind of theological survey. Um, I was going to talk about the end times. I was going to talk about what the Bible is. I was going to talk about the nature of salvation. I, I had about eight different theological topics that were, I was going to talk about in eight or so chapters. And one of the chapters was Jesus, because I, I think that Christology is a place that confounds us and confuses us and embarrasses us sometimes. We don't know how to talk about Jesus. Um, or we talk about Jesus in ways that just turn people off. I mean, it, Jesus is a really difficult topic uh, to address in, in, in our culture right now. So I thought, well, I'll, I'll, I'll start with that chapter. So I'm sitting in my office in summer of 2019 thinking I'm going to write a book about eight theological questions. And I start writing about Jesus and I wrote and I wrote and I wrote and I wrote. I wound up having about 70 pages. And um, then I called my actual editor, the person at Harper who who edits my books, not just my 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 agent. And I said, uh, this is turning into a book about Jesus. And she said, what? We did not hire you to write a book about Jesus. <laughs> and we, we had to go back and forth about this. She said, you're not trained in New Testament. <laughs> I read it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm a Christian. I, I, I know a few things about Jesus. And so, so we kind of went back and forth on it. She said, okay, um, well, let's see what you come up with. And um, that's where Freeing Jesus was born. So I was planning on writing about belief in general and wound up just, maybe I'm a, the, my family, uh, at least my dad's family was German background. And so there were lots of Lutherans along the way, historically, on his side of the family. And, um, you know, really what Freeing Jesus has as its center is a kind of a Christological, uh, Christocentric vision of all of theology. Because I do ask questions about the end times in the Bible and, and salvation and original sin and all kinds of things. But I do all of it through the lens of an experience with Jesus. So it's an incredibly Christocentric what I call memoir theology. And um, it's about belief. And that means Christianity after religion is finally done. We need to pause to tell you about one of our annual sponsors, Baptist Seminary of Kentucky. Listen in to a conversation with Robert P. Jones, author of White Too Long, The Legacy of White Supremacy in American Christianity, and Dr. Lewis Brogdon, Executive Director of BSK's Institute for Black Church Studies, entitled America's Racial Reckoning and the Crisis of White Christianity. Visit institute.bsk.edu backslash Jones 2021 for recording of this important conversation starting October 18th. Since 2016, CBF has brought you over 100 episodes of interviews with authors and practitioners for conversations that matter. These stories of creativity and innovation have garnered weekly support from around the United States and the world. We are inviting you, the listeners, to join us in connecting with the podcast. Become a monthly listener supporter and receive some perks, including name recognition on the podcast, questions for upcoming guests, free books from the podcast, joining the podcast for an interview, and a VIP experience with the General Assembly podcast guest. There are five levels of listener support starting at $5 per month. For less than the cost of a pumpkin spice latte, you will be featured by name on the weekly podcast episode. For more information and to join the community of listener supporters, visit cbf.net slash podcast support. So, 
I know you're Episcopal, but you grew up Methodist and in the evangelical tradition. Um, now I'm going to go out on a limb and say that any rendition of Jesus in the pictures or paintings in your churches were very, and I mean very white Jesus. Um, <laughs> I'm, I'm going to go out in an even sturdier limb and say that 75% of those listening to this uh, also grew up with that, um, you know, blue-eyed, dirty, blonde-haired figure with the perfectly trimmed whiskers and the traveling dry cleaner that kept his robes oh so clean and pressed. So, um, you know, so in what ways does our does our racial biased view of Jesus shape the way that we interpret uh, what Jesus has to teach us, has to show us as we think about maybe these perilous shackles that we've placed on Jesus? Well, you know, it's funny that you would say that because, yes, I did grow up Methodist and I refer to along the way, because the book is very, is based around memoir. I do, do refer to things that would be familiar to churchgoers from the 1960s, 1970s, 1980s, et cetera. Because um, the book starts when I'm three years old, sitting in a Methodist Sunday school classroom. And uh, that would have been in 1962 or 1963. And in that, in the course of telling us the story about how Jesus loves little children, Miss Jean, the Sunday school teacher, whose name I still remember, um, held up a picture of Jesus. And it was a picture of Jesus sitting in the middle of a crowd of little children. And um, it's fascinating that you would think that that was a white Jesus picture because it wasn't. Oh. Yeah. It's, it was a stark contrast picture to the, to the famous white Jesus picture that was in the, the hallway, you know, of the Sunday school uh, classroom sort of hall in, in our church building. Um, but this was a picture of Jesus. I went and I dug it up um, and it wasn't exactly a black Jesus, but it was a sort of a racially hard to figure out Jesus. Um, so it was someone's attempt, I think, to make in 19, the early 1960s to make Jesus look Palestinian or more Jewish than your normal Jesus. And the little children that were around that Jesus, there was one little girl who was blonde and blue eyed. And I talk about that because there was a little girl in the picture who was leaning her head on Jesus shoulder and she looked like me. Um, but the interesting thing was, is that there were other little children and they were from a whole bunch of different racial ethnic groups. And so the, that picture was actually a very inclusive picture. And I think that for, for me, um, my experience was always that the white Jesus picture in the hallway, the, I guess it's the Sol Solomon or the, the, that famous, you know, Jesus with the hair, blonde hair blowing in the wind painting. Um, that painting was always the outlier I don't know what it was about the Methodist church I went to when I was growing up, but um, it took very seriously the idea that God loved everybody. And I remember very distinctly as a child uh, having pictures of little kids from all over the world and the idea that Jesus was embracing them. And so there was a kind of, surprising inclusion or attempted diversity in my wow. early vision of the world and all of the anti-racist stuff that I learned first in my life. And this sounds absolutely crazy to say all of it came from the church Wow! in the 1960s. And so while around me, there was roaring my incredibly racist relatives and um, what I would consider to be, uh, you know, my, my completely white elementary school in the Baltimore public school district and the roar of anger um, about race, racism and racial violence that, that literally surrounded me as a child. Um, the only place that talked about racial equality was that basement of that Methodist church with all of those wonderful, amazing, white, <laughs> older ladies, Sunday school teachers 
who just kept insisting Sunday after Sunday after Sunday after Sunday that Jesus loved all the little children of the world. And if that was the case, then we were to do that too. And so, so it wasn't what you would call, you know, full on anti white supremacy or a challenge of privilege or any of the kind of language that we have to talk about that today. Um, but as, you know, as white people growing up in Baltimore city in the 1960s, um, the people in my Methodist church Sunday school basement did, I think far, far better than anyone would anticipate and, um, really gave me, um, an alternate way of seeing the gospel. Um, and, and I laughed at that white Jesus stuff ever since I can remember. I never took that seriously. I always thought that was just somebody's goofy, you know, sort of idea of what Jesus looked like. I always knew Jesus was a Jew. I always knew Jesus had darker skin. I always knew Jesus was, you know, not German or Scottish. <laughs> so I was under no illusions about any of that stuff. Even while loving, you know, the art of, of Northern Europe and being able to see that, you know, eventually understanding the cultural patterns, you know, that shaped those kinds of that, that kind of art and, you know, appreciating it for, for its beauty and, you know, recognizing that its limits in terms of um, understanding the depth of, of the gospel and God's truly inclusive love. So your Jesus didn't have the, um, the spangled uh, sash going across Okay. Mm -hmm. All right. Just confused. I thought that was a given in every, <laughs> in every white church in, in the South. Um, well, you know, it's, it's funny. I've had some great interviews with, with mostly um, I, I say young male pastors who are in their, their thirties and forties. And when I talk to them about my experience of growing up in that Sunday school, they're completely shocked. They literally had, there was this one group of podcasters who said to me, that they never imagined there was a world where a little white girl could grow up sitting in a circle with a diverse picture of Jesus on the wall. And, and that I understood that Jesus to be the friend of all people in all places and all races across the world. And, and one of them got really filled up at one moment and said, Oh my gosh, you know, if only I had heard that when I was a child. Mm, yeah. And, uh, well, and, I, you know, I was you know, I'm, in, I'm in my 60s. I'm in my 60s and I'm shocked by that statement. So yeah, I, I can imagine what it's like for 20 and 30 year olds. So, yeah. So racially biased lens is just the tip of the iceberg when it comes to yeah. deconstructing our misconstrued views of Jesus. So, yes. What does it practically look like for people to to come to a place of openness that leads to deconstruction of the many ways we have tried to bind Jesus based on who we want him to be. The part of the, the story behind this book and why I got so interested in, you know, pursuing either writing a book on theology in general, and then eventually this Christological lens into theology was that I am really concerned with mostly my younger friends who find themselves in that place of deconstruction. And um, I had to do a lot of that kind of work. Excuse me. I had to do a lot of that kind of work about 20 years ago. And so I live in kind of a different place from it right now. But what I do in the, in the book, because it's memoir is that I go back and retrace how I thought of Jesus and what needed to be deconstructed mostly when I was in my thirties and forties and then how that happened. And so, so the, I'd say the, the sort of the, the, the most dramatic chapter in the book is chapter five and, and chapter five takes place uh, when I am between about 32 and 38 years old. And it's, it's, it's really the heart of what now people would call deconstruction. And, and when I was in my thirties, I found myself, as I say, the chapter is called the way Jesus says the way I found myself following the wrong way, which was a hyper Calvinist excluding um, Jesus 
And I had to turn around and come out of that and go a different way. And that was not easy work. It really took almost a decade to do. And I, I tell stories in that chapter that I have never told in public, including the fact that I, there's this one point where I describe this kind of rigid, very hyper neo Calvinism um, as a house of mirrors. And that's the way it felt, you know, at the time that I'd gotten into this place and that every time I turned around and I saw something I thought I knew, either myself or like that picture of Jesus from my childhood Sunday school classroom, um, the image was wrong. It was, it was, it was distorted. And I didn't recognize either God or myself. And it was because of this theological sort of house of mirrors that I'd wound up in. And there, so there was a moment and, you know, please trigger warning people, but um, I actually tried to jump out of a window when I walked past, well, I was walking past this window and I looked and I, I didn't see the person I thought I would, that I was. And I, I was kind of in sort of my head in this place of theological mental illness. And I thought the only way out was to, to jump through. And um, I, I didn't. Um, but when you get to the point when you're going to jump through a window because you've become a hyper Calvinist, you're probably not in a theological place you want to be. And um, so I tell the story of how, the, how I got out of that. And, you know, I got out of it through uh, great friends and enormous amount of courage. I had to take apart my first marriage. I had to uh, suffer the loss of my first job. I went to a lot of counseling and um, just realized how I had allowed myself to follow a Jesus that had led me to a path of self-violence and violence against others. And there was no way that that was the Jesus that, that I knew as a girl who was a, who was the Jesus of friendship and the Jesus of love and how I, and, and um, that was, I needed to find that Jesus again as an adult. And so, so I returned toward, I turned back toward um, a path where I thought I would find the Jesus of love. And so, and I did, and that, and um, that's been the path that I've been pursuing with, with, I hope humility and vigor and um, conviction. Uh, I know conviction, humility and vigor are the two that I, that I'm a little, you know, more tentative about. Uh, but that's, but with conviction, if nothing else, I have pursued that path for the last um, 20 years. So, we had a so that was, th so, so it is a book that has a lot about deconstruction in it. And, and, it, and I think memoir is really, really, really important to deconstruction. If you don't know who you are, if you don't know where you've been, you can't get to where God is calling you to be. And you have to face your own story um, in, in, in its beauty and in its ugliness. And, and that to me is sort of the key to deconstruction. And when you can accept the ugliness, when you, when you can accept that you've done terrible things because of terrible theology, um, for me, I found that there was a, a real freedom there. And, and to be able to confess that in this book uh, was, wow, it was, it was almost, uh, it, it was literally one of the most liberative acts that I've done for myself. And, and so I, I was pleased to be able to put it between covers and offer it to anyone who would find it healing. Yeah, I love in the book, you talk about that understanding Jesus must be an exercise in memory and in, and now uh, there's a quote from the book you wrote, um, Jesus invited them into a way of life based on a vision of a wildly gifted God who created everything, who turns authority upside down, who shatters the pretenses of power, who proclaims the kingdom of the heart, and who brings the poor, the outcast, the forgotten, and the mourning to the table set with endless feast. 
You know, the, the Jesus you are describing is not the one that I was taught about in church growing up. That Jesus was the one who wanted me to say a special prayer and ask him into my heart and make sure that I uh, make it up to that eternal mansion of glory. You know, for many churches, um, if they're willing to admit that they're, they've gotten this whole Jesus thing wrong, you know, what, is it, what does it look like for a church to posture itself in a way that it can consider that maybe it has gotten this Jesus thing all wrong? Well, um, the, the, the Jesus that I was writing about in that paragraph, which when you read it, I thought, hey, that's pretty good. <laughs> <laughs> do, do you I need like an that. audiobook reader for the audiobook version? I mean, I would happily do that. <laughs> I, I, I like that, you know. Um, uh, that's basically, you know, that, that's the Jesus of the Beatitudes. And so, um, you know, if people say to me, well, I, you know, that's not the Jesus that, you know, we knew when I, when we were growing up or that's not the Jesus of salvation. Well, it is actually the Jesus of Matthew and Luke. And so um, I, I think that pulling on different threads of the tradition is really important. And you know, in a very real sense, there is nothing in freeing Jesus that goes outside of the Bible. I mean, it, it's literally freeing Jesus is probably the most closely biblical book that I have ever written. I quote scripture all the time, paragraphs like that. I mean, literally, if you look at the Beatitudes and you look at that paragraph, that paragraph is constructed exactly out of the Beatitudes. And, and so what we, what we have done with Jesus is, you know, I have, a, I have a doctorate in American religion and I studied fundamentalism is that we turned a, a particular kind of folk American religion, Jesus into the Jesus that we encounter in, in the Bible. And that's that Jesus. That's the Jesus of the altar call. That's the Jesus of our, you know, who's going to take us to heaven. That's the Jesus of, of the fountain filled with blood. And most of that sort of vision of Jesus, you know, developed in the early and mid 19th century. And it was ritualized into particular kinds of denominational practices and stories. And it became the Jesus of the, of, of revivalism. And there are aspects of that Jesus that are in scripture, but it's a very limited sort of angle onto Jesus and who Jesus is. Uh, so, so I understand my own work theologically and when I'm working with scripture, when I'm preaching, which I do a lot these days, is to sort of take the prism of understanding that we have and just sort of turn it so that the light falls differently through familiar stories. And so to lift up Jesus as the proclaimer of the Beatitudes, instead of just primarily the one who dies on a cross for our sin, and who, if we're washed in the blood, we're going to heaven. Um, you could actually hold on to both of those things. It, it, it doesn't necessarily have to be an either or kind of story. You sort of turn the prism and the beatitude, the light falls through it, and Jesus becomes the Jesus who is constituted a table of the poor and the oppressed. And and so that's scripture too. And the question for us, I think, becomes why didn't we ritualize that? You know, why why do we hold on to these 19th century traditions that our ancestors found? renewing and healing and life-giving and important for whatever reason um, and valorize them and act as if that's the entirety of the gospel when we're leaving tons of other stuff out. And so I, I think that this is the, a moment in history when we're called to look and see what we're leaving out. What have we left out of the church's ritual, of the church's storytelling, of the church's 
memory? What has the church forgotten? And so that's what I, that's really what I, the way that I approach it. And I think that um, there are a lot of churches right now that are asking themselves these questions. Um, you know, what, what is a fuller story? I'm not asking people to tell a lesser story of Jesus. I'm asking them to look at the story from a whole host of angles that they haven't considered before. And I even, as you know, since you read the book, there are two chapters in this book about Savior and Lord. And, and I have had progressive Christians come to me, and those are the people who, um, you know, I usually write towards. And I, I've, I've literally had people say, how could you write about that? How could you, how could you write about calling Jesus your savior? And I said, well, because Jesus is savior. And, and I share that in this chapter and there, and despite the fact that, as I just said a moment ago, chapter five is kind of a, um, the most dramatic chapter because I talk about having to walk away from something, uh, chapters three and four chapter about savior and Lord are the nicest things that I have ever written about evangelicalism. Um, and, and people, those same people who have criticized me saying, you know, how could you say that? You know, I've never heard you talk about Jesus being your personal savior. And I, well, that was a really important part of my life. And I tried to write about Jesus as savior as if I was still a 15 year old girl sitting around the campfire in the, in my backyard in Scottsdale, Arizona, hearing my friend playing, uh, I wish we'd all been ready on their guitar, you know, and singing about the end times and how meaningful and how beautiful that was to me at 15 and what it, why it was beautiful for me at 15. But I didn't stop there. It did not become the whole vision of Jesus that I held on to. And so I, so then in chapter four, I talk about how that vision of savior sort of grew into a vision of Jesus as Lord and what Lord meant and why, why Lord was such an important category for me when I was in my twenties and, and what, and where was the beauty and the wisdom and the power of that word then? Um, and eventually how that word became kind of culturally twisted and took me down this wrong path. But that's why story is so important is that oftentimes I think as both individuals and as sort of congregations, we get to this point where we say, well, that's what I used to believe, or that's what we no longer want to put forward. Um, and so we're going to reject that. But the truth of it is, is that the Christian tradition has all of these different kinds of words in it to describe Jesus, you know, friend, love, or, or friend, uh, uh, teacher, uh, savior, Lord, way, presence, lover, you know, I mean, there's tons of words to describe who Jesus is. And what happened with, I think, American evangelicalism is it got stuck. It got stuck in like two or three words in the 19th century. And it said, that's the story. And it became a very limiting story and it became a deeply problematic story. And it became a racially uh, bound story. And it became a, a story that basically closed the covers um, and said, nothing more can be said about this story other than what has already been said or other than our, the hymns that our ancestors already wrote. Um, and so in effect, American Christianity closed the canon on Jesus sometime in the 19th century. And we have multitudes of denominations that were born then that just see Jesus through that closed cultural canon. And the people who are going through deconstruction now are saying that's inadequate. That, that doesn't work, whether it's through race or social justice or not understanding Jesus's love or not understanding Jesus's teachings. They're saying that that savior Lord thing, that's just inadequate. We have, we, we got to go a different way. And so they're rejecting savior Lord for something else. And so what I try to do in my book is to say, no, what we have to do is not reject those things. We have to figure out ways of integrating them 
in healthy ways that are compassionate to ourselves and compassionate to our ancestors and yet are corrective so that the cultural canon on who Jesus is becomes open again and that we can create um, a different kind of community um, around that table. So, so, so I've never quite described it that way. And thank you for asking the question because I think I, understand this book better because of what you just asked me to talk about. I think that's really what I've been trying to do with this, this project is say, you know, love yourself, love your story. You can recognize what was wrong in your story, but if you throw away your story, you're throwing away part of yourself and you're probably throwing away part of the tradition that probably shouldn't entirely be thrown away. It might need to be reinterpreted. It might need to be redefined. It might need to be embraced in a new way. Um, but I, I'm a real recycler. Um, you know, I, I will put things in boxes and closets rather than throw them away until I know that they are absolutely no good. And um, if I could take Savior and Lord the way that I do in chapters three and four and freeing Jesus and rehabilitate them with beauty and, 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 and self-compassion. Um, probably anybody can um, do that kind of work. And I, I, I was grateful to have done that piece. I, I was grateful to go back and reclaim 15 year old Diana. I was really grateful to go back and talk well about the evangelical college I attended between the time I was 18 and 22 and to remember myself, um, what was so beautiful and powerful and how much I learned in those years and, um, how much of it I still really carry with me and, and that I don't have to reject. And so, um, so, so that's, I think all part of it. And I think the more that churches can figure out how to do that kind of work to, to both hold their traditions and to hold their traditions with self-compassion, but also with that critical eye while opening toward that larger, um, oh, as I, as I called it a moment again, opening the cultural canon, as it were, to bring in other stories to seat, to be seated around that table. I think that's the right way for us to go. Um, so it doesn't become just a path of I'm terrible. I'm white. I'm European. I have to reject all this stuff. I have to never think that my ancestors said anything wise, you know, that's not it. You have that cultural story. You have that canon. That's always going to be part of you. You can't walk around flagellating yourself for your whole life about all of that stuff. But what you can do is you can say, there was an essential beauty there that I understood at certain times in my life. And I want to lift up whatever it was out of that, that is beautiful and that shaped me. And I also want to be able to say it wasn't all on point. There were things that got very wrong and I can be part of the story of corrective. And while you're doing that work, self-compassion and corrective work of your own culture and your own tradition, the way you've seen scripture, you can also be opening the door of your heart towards all those other stories and listening to them well and figuring out how you can sit at a new table where all of those stories are present. Well, let's maybe, if we can't take that a little deeper, you know, because the reality is there's a countless people who have, seen the disconnect between the Jesus of the gospels and the Jesus presented in the church tradition. And, and they've, they've actually unshackled Jesus uh, in that way within their own theological, you know, spectrum, but they've been not given permission to continue to follow Jesus independent of the faith tradition that shaped this inaccurate understanding of Jesus. And you wrote people, uh, this is not the book, but this recent article you wrote, you said people are leaving white evangelicalism for a host of political, social, and theological reasons. Some of the best research suggests that people are leaving conservative churches because they don't believe what those communities teach any longer. 
this is a, a two-part question. First, where are these people going? And second, how might churches that are contrary to white evangelicalism connect deeply with these theological refugees? So, uh, they're going to different places. We we don't entirely know um, where all those folks are migrating. And that's going to be the work of some pretty serious sociology of religion over the next uh, few years. But the, the indications are that some of them are becoming none of the above. I mean, that was the most obvious place. They just are unmoored and said, you know, hey, I'm post-religious. I'm done. And you see a lot of that discussion on on social media and around the sort of the ex evangelical or X V hashtags. Um, and so, so that's clearly there. You also see folks who were evangelicals who have migrated towards the, the old, what we call the old mainline liberal churches. And um, you know, that that's an awkward migration on both sides of that coin. Um, evangelicals come wandering into, you know, the local liberal Presbyterian church and they're kind of startled, you know, it's like, where are all the young people, you know? And, uh, oh, and the other thing is where's the parking lot? You know, <laughs> I mean, there's most of those old churches, they don't have parking garages, you know, they don't have coffee stands. They don't have very many kids in the Sundays in the nursery school. I mean, they don't have screens up in the front of the church. I mean, it's like a cross-cultural experience, you know, for an ev- for somebody who grew up in evangelicalism to wander into sort of a liberal mainline church uh, for the most part. Um, and so, th- so there's that. And, and then the people in the church are so startled that someone who used to be an evangelical wanders in the door. They don't know how to talk to them. You know, it's, <laughs> it's literally like, who are you? You used, you used to be a Southern Baptist? What are you doing here? The Southern Baptist, the mega church is down the street. You're in the wrong <laughs> building. You know they try to kick them out. You know it's like no, no. I really want to be here. You know, <laughs> so so it's a really it's a really awkward cultural confrontation, which which actually goes to show how distant these cousins of American Protestantism became in the 20th century. Uh, that. It, it's hard for a person who was an evangelical to become a mainliner. I mean, it's just tough. So, so, but there is some of that that's happening and, and it's, it's funny and it's kind of beautiful when it works and there are churches where it is working. And those are churches. Oftentimes I get a lot of invitations out of those churches. Um, and, and there are a few of us who are doing that kind of translation work. You know, I think that of folks who are, probably the forefront of that Brian McLaren is one of the people who is standing in that gap, you know, between those two worlds and trying to help translate between them. I I think a lot of my work kind of stands there too. Um, And um, so that's an interesting thing uh, for, for ex evangelicals who are white, you know, so we know that some people are going there. There's also some small indication that there are ex-evangelicals who, who kind of keep sorts of evangelical attitudes about some things um, culturally, sometimes around women, um, sometimes around uh, how orthodox do I have to be to still be a Christian, uh, sort of creedal stuff. Um, and they seem to be wandering towards uh, some of the smaller, what I would call more creedally driven aspects of traditional Protestantism. And so that would include, there's a group of people that refer to themselves as Anglican. And sometimes people mistake them for Episcopalians, uh, but they're not. Um, they're actually fairly conservative around issues of women and fairly conservative around issues of sexual concern and LGBTQ issues. Um, and they are also very creedal, but they're also very liturgical and they're not, you walk into a door when their churches and you would never mistake it for an evangelical church. And so it does seem to be that there's a few kind of ex evangelicals who are retaining some of the political, social 
influence of evangelicalism in a slightly different package. And they're moving towards these more conservatively creedal churches. So that's kind of an interesting question. And I'm kind of keeping my eyes on all three of those things. Um, then the post-religious humanists, none of the above, the people who are trying very hard to find themselves um, back toward moderate and mainline denominations. Of course, the, the CBF goes in that, that category, you know, all your, um, I'm not a Southern Baptist anymore, uh, <laughs> but I still want to be Baptist. And how do we do this kind of people? Um, and I, I, I love the CBF for the, 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 the range of creativity and the, um, the, the capacity of answers around those questions, I think is kind of interesting about the, about your communities. Um, and then there is this you know, sort of really small pocket of these sort of hyper um, liturgical creedal denominations where people are kind of moving over there. And um, I think that that's interesting and a little worrisome because those still tend to toward being kind of politically conservative on everything except for race. So, so it's interesting. Just, you know, that's Diana, the Diana, the scholar, you know, paying attention, you know, looking at, <laughs> looking at the larger world, trying to figure out, well, if people are leaving white evangelicalism, where are they, where are they showing up? Mm -hmm. And those are places they're going. There's, there's so many questions. I still wish we had time to get to, um, so maybe I'll, I'll end with this one. Of all these uh, experience of Jesus, you are deeply connected in your faith journey, whether it be friend, teacher, savior, Lord, way, and presence. Um, I wonder if you would share which of these expressions are most uh, meaningful to you right now and why. Oh, thank you for asking. Um, I made a plea a few minutes ago for the integration of all of the images. And that's certainly what I do at the end of the book. Uh, so it's very hard for me to sort of separate the strands right now is that when I think of Jesus, I think of Jesus as friend, teacher, friend, teacher, savior, Lord, way presence. And then a, a number of other words that I put at the end of the book that don't have freestanding chapters. And so, so I kind of run all the words together. And so I'm in a very integrative place in my own life. And, and that being said, um, the pandemic for me actually sharpened Jesus as friend, which is kind of an interesting um, thing to have happened. And it sharpened that one image for me because I couldn't see my friend. You know, here I was writing a book about Jesus and thinking about Jesus every single day and going back and revisiting my own experiences of Jesus. And, and there's something that is very innocent and beautiful and wistful and very youthful um, about that friend chapter. And it, it really is all of the memories I could summon up of my own life in with Jesus before I was about five years old. And as I went back and was writing about that during the pandemic, um, I realized that the first encounter that I had had with who Jesus is um, was also the encounter that I needed most um, during the pandemic and a time when I was isolated from other people. And so I think that, the friend chapter was very healing for me in these recent months. Um, and that's, a, that surprised me. And I loved writing about it. And uh, there are people who respond really, really, really warmly to that chapter. So I think that a lot of people in these times of being cut off from others and cutting off from our friends uh, found the idea of Jesus as friend is being pretty compelling, even though it's, you know, sometimes seen as kind of a wishy-washy, you know, sort of second rate image of Jesus. Oh, Jesus isn't your friend. He's the Lord of the universe, you know, kind of thing. Um, you know, first of all, Jesus loves the little children. Well, Diana, there are a gazillion questions I would love to get to about what is faith and church going to look like after the pandemic. So maybe just maybe we can have you uh, back on. 
Um, the book is Freeing Jesus, Rediscovering Jesus as Friend, Teacher, Savior, Lord, Way, and Presence. Our guest is Diana Butler Bass. Follow her work at dianabutlerbass.com. Uh, Diana, it is a humbling experience. Uh, thank you for sharing your time and your wisdom. Uh, we are incredibly grateful for your invitation for us to rediscover the Jesus who has been with us in our fear and confusion and loss, forced isolation and surprising moments of joy. Well, I, I, it's a pleasure to be able to share this. You know, I, I often think that if the church recenters itself on our experience of who Jesus is in all these ways, you know, we'd be less confused about what the church of the future looked like if we concentrated on being the body of Jesus right here and now. And, um, and people who are interested as well as I, I do have a newsletter called the cottage, which, uh, I continue to explore all these questions and it's, you know, since it's not a book, it comes out a couple of few times a month and people can sign up for either free forum or there is a paid subscription version of it as well. And you just do what you want uh, in terms of, of receiving it. it comes to your email box. And I continue to look at all these kinds of things and hopefully continue to answer the sorts of questions that um, you, you, you all are interested in. So you can connect with me that way. And it's one of my favorite ways of connecting with my readers right now. This podcast is presented to you by McAfee School of Theology at Mercer University, who exists to train ministers who inspire the church and the world to imagine, discover, and create God's future. Located in Atlanta, Georgia, the McAfee School of Theology offers doctoral and master's degree programs, including a fully online Master of Divinity degree the only fully online MDiv offered by a national research university. You can visit their webpage, theology.mercer.edu, to learn more about their programs and scholarships. Okay, that's it. That's our conversation. If you want more, be sure to subscribe to CBF's podcast on all major platforms, including iTunes, Spotify, SoundCloud, and Google Podcast. Don't forget to like and share this episode on your favorite social media platforms. Be sure to support our annual sponsors by visiting their websites. Again, that's the Baptist Seminary of Kentucky, the Center for Congregational Health, and McAvee School of Theology's Doctorate and Ministry Program. Check out cbf.net for more information about our church starters, field personnel, advocacy work, and much more. Oh, and I don't think we've mentioned this, that you should join the listener community at cbf.net backslash podcast support.